Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining me today for episode 45 is Jungian analyst, Dr. Kenneth James. He received a PhD in Communicative Sciences and Disorders from Northwestern University and a diploma in Analytical Psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Along the way, he studied vocal music at the American Conservatory of Music and learned a modality of music therapy known as the Bonnie Method of Guided Imagery at the Institute for Consciousness and Music in Baltimore, Maryland. He also completed four years of postdoctoral study in theology and scripture at the Catholic Theological Union. Dr. James holds the rank of Professor Emeritus after a 33-year career as a university professor. He has served on the faculty at Roosevelt University, Northeastern Illinois University, and Northwestern University. Currently, he is the Director of Student Services at the University of Chicago's Laboratory School, where he coordinates services for students with learning, emotional, and behavioral needs. And he is the founder and director of the Soul Work Center in the city of Chicago, where he is in private practice as a Jungian analyst. Dr. James has led workshops around the world on the relationship between divination and synchronicity and on the use of the tarot as a way to explore the unconscious. The relationship between Jungian thought, clinical practice, and esoterica has been a strong motif of his work throughout his career, and it is the subject of our talk today. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, June 26, 2019, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Dr. James. Hello, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. You and I spoke, it was about 10 days ago, on a late night radio show called The Other Side of Midnight, mm -hmm. where you were my guest to talk about Jung's essay, his famous essay called Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. Um, there's been a lot of talk about UFOs in the news lately, so we discussed that, but we also discussed a lot more. And that interview, uh, the first hour, is available for free to listen to at theothersideofmidnight.com. And the entire three-hour interview is available to subscribers. Um, it's only, I think it's $9.95 a month to become a subscriber of Club 19.5. And I will provide links to all of that on the website, speakingofyoung.com. Um, so we won't duplicate what we spoke about that night. Um, we were speaking to a much broader audience then, and here we can get a bit more focused and more specific for a Jungian audience. So I would like to begin by introducing you to the Speaking of Jung audience by asking you how you became interested in Jung. Hmm. That's a... That's a uh, story that has a lot of different entry points. I'm sure. The, the earliest uh, connection to Jung actually came about when I was a freshman in college, and we had to write a speech for a Fundamentals of Speech class. And <clears throat> I didn't know what I was going to write about, and we had to pick a topic that 
was interesting and outside of our field. And at the time, my field was mathematics. So I opened my uh, copy of the portable Jung, which I had purchased, God knows why, um, and found Jung interpreting a dream. And I used that as the uh, basis for the speech that I gave and completed that assignment for my class. But I became very intrigued by what Jung was talking about and the way he was valuing dreams and what he called the unconscious, which at the time I didn't understand. Uh, fast forward through college, graduate school, uh, Northwestern, which was where I went to graduate school, was in Evanston, where the C.G. Jung Institute was. Mm -hmm. And one of the professors at the university was an analyst. Um, and he was kind of an unusual character. His name was Lee Roloff. And he was offering a public program at the Jung Institute on fairy tales. And I thought, well, that might be interesting. And I took it. And that really cemented my commitment to Jung. There was, it, it's hard to say how did I come to Jung. It's sort of, Jung came to me yeah. and I was pulled in to what I would consider the absolute, for me, um, truth and clarity of our relationship to the world and to our psyche, to the mind. Mm -hmm. And that person eventually became my first analyst, but that was many years after graduate school. Mm -hmm. So how did that progress into you becoming a Jungian analyst? So that first analysis that I did with him took about nine years, mm -hmm. which is, you know, pretty reasonable for a Jungian anal analysis. And at the end of that time, you know, I finished and I could tell there was sort of an emptiness. And I, I thought, what am I going to do? At the time, I was directing a clinic at the university and, um, but it wasn't obviously a, a clinic that would have anything to do with Jung. And I thought, I really need more more of this. And I wonder what that would look like. So, so let I'm, me just ask you, it yeah. was a clinic you were practicing as a psychologist? No, uh, this was a clinic where we served the community for children with learning and emotional and behavioral issues. And at that point, what was kind of your title? I was, um, at that time, I think I was associate professor of special education. Okay. And I was running a clinic, which is, I went to a clinical program, so that's kind of what mm -hmm. I always wanted to do. And it became pretty clear to me that what we were doing was ignoring data. Because these kids, and sometimes adults, I also worked with adults in the clinic, um, would come with all kinds of stories about how difficult it was for them to navigate the world of academia, or the world of social relationships, and we were looking at it at the time from the perspective of a breakdown in communication and sort of the, the ability to understand and use symbols. And I started to feel that we weren't getting the whole picture, that there was more to this than just language and nonverbal. We, mm -hmm. we atomized everything. We broke it apart. And 
the Jungian perspective was much more comprehensive. As you said in the beginning, you know, Jung looked at everything, including topics that polite people uh, in academic or learned circles probably don't look at, like UFOs or the I Ching or any of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I made an appointment just to go talk to my old analyst, and I said, you know, what should I do? I'd like to study more. Or I'd like to be more involved. Should I start analysis again? He said, have you thought about becoming an analyst? And I said, no. He said, well, why don't you think about it? So I read all the paperwork and I thought about it and <clears throat> I applied and was accepted and started my second analysis at that time. Okay, let me just stop you right there. I'm going to jump in. So you had a PhD at that point. Oh, yeah. So in order, so you applied to a training program and specifically the one at the Jung Institute of Chicago, right? Correct. Okay. And so you needed that postgraduate degree in order to be accepted into the training program. Oh, yeah. And you needed also to have undergone already a personal analysis with the Jungian analyst. Yes. I just want to point that out because we can't just apply to a training program. There there are some rules there. There are some things that that are necessary first. Right, right. And in fact, application to the training program requires that a person is able to practice in some mental health field. So that means they have the appropriate degrees, licensure, and experience, even before you apply. And I have mixed feelings about that because I do think that it's possible for people, let's say with PhDs in uh, architecture or entomology. In fact, we have um, an analyst in our program whose PhD is in entomology. Uh, He's been an analyst for many years. Mm but be that as it may, you had to be able to practice independently. So that meant that there really was a personal calling to entering analyst training. It was not, uh, well, I need to get this credential in order to practice. So it's a very, for me, a very special, uh, it may be a little corny to say sacred um, connection. And it really is, it involves surrendering to a process that really is uh, idiosyncratic in terms of the individual being trained. It's not one size fits all. Is that a IAAP, which is the International Association for Analytical Psychology, mm-hmm. is that one of their stipulations um, or is that just here in the United States? Because That's here in the United States. Okay. Right. okay. And, and that's so- recent. Um, that was not the case when I first began okay. the program because we had a variety of people. We had someone that was in training with me was the leading world expert on Cervantes. Um, brilliant woman. She's passed away now, Ruth El Safar. Would you yeah. explain what Cervantes is? Oh, Cervantes, uh, Miguel de Cervantes, the guy who wrote Don Quixote. I'm sorry, she was a Spanish, um, a very famous Spanish scholar. And she was in our training program. There were artists in the training program at the time. Uh, In the United States, we become much more concerned with licensure. Mm -hmm. 
for a variety of reasons, some of which escape me, uh, for people starting the program. But that is not a, uh, a global requirement, no. Mm. So you decided to become a Jungian analyst. You applied to the training program. You entered the training program. Then what? What, what was involved in your training before oh. you could <clears throat> call yourself a Jungian analyst? Uh, so your entrance is really, uh, on both sides, it was a conditional entrance. It's called, uh, the first year is called being a matriculated auditor. And what that meant is you took all the classes, you participated in your personal analysis. You also uh, went into supervision with an analyst. And what that, what that meant is you would go to that person to discuss your own clinical work with your own clients. So you're kind of working at those two levels the whole time, taking classes. And instead of exams, there are committee meetings. So you would meet with various committees who would examine you, evaluate you, um, discuss your progress with you. And then at the end of that first year, you were given either the opportunity to continue to the second year, or you would be asked to repeat the first year again, or you could be asked to leave. Mm. Um, yeah. Then after that, um, the second year up to maybe between two and three years of coursework, personal analysis, and supervision, you sat for a large set of exams, both written and oral, uh, called the propodeuticum examination. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that exam evaluates your competence in five areas. So history and development of analytical psychology, um, the application of analytical psychology in a variety of areas, activation of the unconscious, diagnosis, and uh, sort of categorization, more traditional clinical things. And you sit for these exams that go on for, for about five days, and then you either pass or you fail. Mm -hmm. If you pass, you then move into the phase of training, which is called the control phase. And what that means is you've demonstrated enough competence in the content that you are able to practice as an analyst under supervision. Uh, prior to that, you're just doing therapy. So now you can practice as an analyst under supervision, generally once or twice a week. In addition to your own personal analysis, you would go to a control analyst who would work with you around your own clinical work again, and, but focus specifically on what's coming up for you personally as you work with various people. Yeah, that's really key, isn't it? Definitely. The right. difference between um, someone who's not not a Jungian analyst or mm -hmm. a Freudian analyst. Um, so why would you tell us why that is so important? So, and I'm glad you brought up the Freudian school is also mm -hmm. a school that requires that. It's important because of the nature of analytic work. From a Jungian perspective, I'll use some technical terms and then you can ask me to define them yeah. if they're not clear. Um, 
the analyst and the analysand, the analysand is a term that's used to refer to the client in an analytic setting. Mm -hmm. The analyst and the analysand from a Jungian perspective are equal before the self. So each of us comes into the room sort of equal with respect to what the self is going to be doing with the analysand at that time in their life. And inevitably, because of that, the analyst is present in a much more vulnerable and open way than, for example, a traditional cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with that kind of therapy. It just isn't what I practice. So, mm -hmm. <clears throat> But because of that, you never can be sure what's going to be stirred up in you, in the in animal. You. Yeah. And actually, often the most effective work is done when you get stirred up as well. So a lot of what we learn in training is how to contain what's getting stirred up, how to sort of engage it in an inner dialogue in the moment, how to take it back to a supervisor or a control analyst in order to be present because at the level of the unconscious, we're all connected. And so the, the mutual triggering that can occur for good or ill in the analytic uh, hour is actually part of what fosters healing. And Jung was always clear that if both analyst and analysand are not changed, the analysis is probably not successful. Mm -hmm. And I like that you said that the triggering is important, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's not a bad thing or a sign of, oh, you know, you think you're so evolved or, um, you know, you, you, you've got a handle on your stuff. Oh, yeah. See, all of that is sort of, what do you mean you have a handle on your stuff? <laughs> that you're not done yet. How yeah. can you possibly? that? But that is, that actually reflects our society's uh, exaltation of the ego. That I am in charge. I have worked through all my material and I will not ever be triggered again or, and from a Jungian perspective, you're going, well, that's nice. I, I've never met anybody like that. Mm -hmm. so, I heard you say that in, in Jungian analysis, we don't seek to cure, we seek to understand. Correct. Yeah. Right. Right. Because cure implies pathology. It implies a state that must be changed to one of more, more normalcy, perhaps. And that's a questionable concept at best, but it certainly flies in the face of the way Jung understood uh, analytic work. Mm -hmm. And so with Jungian psychology, analytical psychology, which is what it's technically called, mm -hmm. and Jungian analysis, we don't call it therapy. Right. No, we call right. it analysis. And a lot of times I am asked, well, what's the difference? Isn't it the same thing? So would no. you summarize briefly, if you could, why analysis is not, quote, therapy? So <clears throat> it may be therapeutic, mm -hmm. but it's not therapy because the meaning of analysis, the meaning of the word is to loosen. And when we move into the analytic space, we're loosening up our identification 
with our story, with our problem, with our situation. And we are attempting to get a little bit of distance, metaphorically speaking, from the continual telling of the story of our lives in order to see what is that story, what's determining that story, and in what respects can that story be modified if necessary. But modifying the story, we're not interested in taking the story and turning it into the right story. We just want to realize what story we've been telling, what are the unconscious determinants of that story, and are there aspects of what we are doing or saying or feeling that need to be changed or modified so that we can become more whole? Therapy operates much more on a, an ego sort of based paradigm. In other words, you come in, if I'm the therapist, and you say, <clears throat> you know, I can't seem to get along with my family. I'm always at odds with my family. Mm -hmm. So we look at that. Well, how does that happen? And what sort of difficulties do you have? And do you have the same difficulty with every family member? And then based on what you have brought in, we work on it, maybe develop strategies. Then you go out and practice them. Then you come back and you tell me how you've been doing. And after you feel that, well, that, that problem is solved, then we part. And then you go on with your life. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And it comes back up again. I just it will. like to add. Right. Absolutely right. Right. Uh, but the problem with that is it relies on the belief that the ego, meaning Ken or Laura or Joe or Pete or whoever, that I can fully identify areas in my life that need to be worked on. And from a Jungian perspective, I can identify some of them, but I'm often very unaware of what actually needs to be addressed, which is why we look not only at what the person comes in with, but we look at dreams and daydreams and synchronicities and uh, everything that the person experiences, we view as an expression of unconscious dynamics, making themselves known so that they may be understood and integrated. Mm -hmm. I heard you say that in analytical psychology, we follow the dictates of the self as they are mm -hmm. revealed through the dictates of the unconscious. Right. So would you define for us the word self? Yeah, it's a very, um, <clears throat> I would say difficult word to understand mm -hmm. simply because it's so common. Yes. Uh, you know, there's self magazine, and there, but that's not this self. Right. Uh, the self, from a Jungian perspective, can be thought of as the totality of the person. It is both the conscious and unconscious aspect of the person. And the self is sort of the architect of the person's life. It is the origin and end of the person's life. And at the level of the self, we are all connected to everyone across all space and throughout all time. So it's vast. Uh, if you read what Jung has written about the self, <clears throat> and I think Jung may even have said this, 
it sounds a lot like what theologians talk about when they talk about the divine. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Jung said, you know, he was writing as a psychologist, so that isn't the term that he used. Mm-hmm. Jung had a vague sense of what eventually became the concept of the self early on in his work. But it wasn't until he was asked to write a commentary on a book of Chinese alchemy called The Secret of the Golden Flower. That commentary came out, I believe, in about 1927. That was the first time Jung used the term self because he discerned in his analysis of this work of Chinese alchemy a dynamic that was very close to what he was trying to articulate and eventually did articulate with the concept of the self. Mm-hmm. So circling back to uh, what we were originally talking about, about becoming a Jungian analyst, I just want to make sure we finished that your description of that process. Okay. So, yeah, right. So where so, did we leave off? We left off passing the propodeuticum. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so then you start the next phase of training, which could take uh, anywhere from two to as ever many years as you need. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually dictated by the number of um, cases you have to work with, the amount of time you have to spend with each case. Because the other thing about uh, working from a Jungian perspective is you work for a long time. Yeah. This isn't short term. Mm-hmm. And so part of the training really is to see, are you able to keep an analysand long enough to complete a good amount of the work. Mm -hmm. And so that period, which is called the control stage, lasts anywhere, as I said, from two to however many years, and it culminates in final exams of two types, both oral. One is the completion of a thesis or dissertation on a significant topic Mm -hmm. in analytical psychology. And the other is the presentation of two analytic cases in full to a committee of analysts. And these are analysts, not just with our own society here in Chicago, but for all of the examinations, both propedeuticum and final, uh, analysts from other societies around the world are also brought in. Mm -hmm. Because finishing analyst training makes you part of the IAAP, the International Association, and therefore it can't just be a local endeavor. There has to be uh, evaluation by someone from outside of your particular local area. And there are training programs all over the world. All over the world. Mm-hmm. In China and huh? Australia. Mm-hmm. Yep. South There's, Africa. Yeah. South Africa. Um, we've just gotten a new one in Eastern Europe, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one in Mexico. There's quite a few in the United States. In Korea, Japan. And Japan, right. Russia. And, yes. It's everywhere. Yep. And it's, it's a, a, a pretty, I don't want to say select because that sounds elite. Mm-hmm. It's a small number of people. I, when you finish, you get your little card, your membership card. And I think my number was like 653 years. Oh, wow. And my diploma from our institute, I think, was number 30. 
So in all the years that our institute had been giving diplomas, Mm -hmm. when I got mine, I was just the 30th person that had finished. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, and I think part of the the difficulty is it is so um, unique or idiosyncratic. I mean, you, you never tell where it's going to lead. Um, all the way through, there are also various case presentations. Then upon graduation, you get your diploma, which is, as you said, the, the credential for becoming a, a union analyst. And then you apply for membership to a society. So I applied for membership to the Chicago Society. And it's pretty much, if you get the, if you get the diploma from the Institute, then mm-hmm. the society that's affiliated with the Institute is going to uh, welcome you. Right. You know, it's not another hurdle, mm-hmm. but it is a rather formal thing. And then you're able to practice as a union analyst. Correct. Mm-hmm. And my question to you is a question that I get, which is, if this takes so long, why do it? Why do Jungian analysis. I mean, I did it. I was in analysis for 17 years. Yeah. yeah. Why do it? I, I can't imagine what I would be like today if I hadn't done it. That does not mean I am a nice person. That does not mean I am a friendly person. That does not mean I don't erupt right. or have issues. Right. It right. means what? It means... It means that you're able to say that without feeling shame or guilt, Laura. Mm-hmm. That's worth a lot. <laughs> and and, to and say, those things I, don't don't last as long as they used to because I have some awareness around it. Correct. Right. It isn't so much that, I, you know, there a concept that Jung used, and it really was a concept that he brought to the whole uh, field of uh, psychology at the time. The concept of the complex. A complex, you know, we can fall into a complex. I can fall into a defensive complex or a superiority complex or whatever. And part of what analysis does is it allows the analysand to see his or her own constellation of complexes and then begin to pull back the psychic or mental energy Mm -hmm. that those complexes are feeding on. So that what happens is they become less powerful, but they don't go away. Right. This, I think, is I always feel that this is very important to explain to my analysis Mm -hmm. because they'll come back maybe a few years. They'll be working with me and something will come up again that that it seemed that we had finished with two, three years ago. Right. And I'll say, well, you know, that complex got triggered. And an analogy I like to use with complexes is fat cells. You know, they say that when someone loses weight, those fat cells remain, but they just become empty. Mm -hmm. But they're always there, Mm -hmm. just waiting to, you know, gobble up some, you know, calories in order to become fat again. The complexes are just waiting to gobble up some psychic energy in order to become active again. So I think for me, why do Jungian analysis is so that you can really get at the truth of who you are and don't get above yourself, but honestly express yourself in the world in a way that is 
as genuine as it possibly can be. Mm-hmm. My experience is most of the people that I know who've gone through Jungian analysis, I feel they're easier to be with. Yeah. Because yeah. they, so, you know, you get into a difficulty and they'll go, you know, I know that this could be partly me, but did you know that when you said that? And you could really move through things right. without projecting and banishing and splitting and all those crazy things that we do all the time mm-hmm. that creates so much pain. Mm-hmm. And so it is about working with the unconscious. Yes. And I heard you say, we develop consciousness by becoming aware of how unconscious we are. And mm-hmm. that is not a slam. That is oh, all of us. Absolutely. In, in the first episode <laughs> of this podcast, episode one with Daryl Sharp, he said, I am unconscious most of the time. This is a seasoned Jungian analyst who's written mm-hmm. 30 books. He's was in his 70s at the time, and he still says, I am unconscious most of the time. And you said that we develop consciousness by waking up, sometimes for just a little bit, mm-hmm. to the fact that we've just been acting out of a complex. Right. So it doesn't mean we don't get complexed anymore. No, no. I, mm-hmm. I remember teaching a class where I said, to the students, you know, I'm I'm hoping for 27 consecutive minutes of consciousness at some point in my life before I die. That would be really great. I don't know why 27. Yeah, right. But um, and they kind of said, "What do you mean?" And I always remind my uh, analysands, what you need to remember is everyone is unconscious most of the time, including both people in this room right now. Mm-hmm. Because unless you can admit that, I think that you're going to be working from some sort of weird position of smug authority. Yeah. And that's not analysis. A concern that's come up is how analytical psychology is being taught today Mm. with the increase in short-term Jungian-oriented psychotherapy being popular because it is easier, the training is shorter, it does not make you a Jungian analyst, but it makes you a Jungian-oriented therapist. And I am concerned about that because I tend to prefer the classical approach, the classical Jungian approach, which is according to how Jung lived and worked. And I know that we're in a different time now. But there is something to be said about the you know, what he developed. And would you say something about that and, and what your observation is of how analytical psychology is being taught and practiced today? Sure. I think in order to understand exactly where I would come down on this, I would look at what Jung called the four phases or the four aspects of analysis. And the four aspects are confession, elucidation, education, and transformation. And those four elements have to be present in analytic work. Now, every therapeutic approach is going to have the first two. Confession is where the client comes in, I'll call them client because we're not necessarily talking about analysis, 
<clears throat> and tells you their story, tells you why they're coming to see you. Elucidation is the back and forth between therapist and client in order to get more clarity on what has been confessed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just stops there. You know, uh, doing therapy following uh, the work of Carl Rogers, for example, would just stop there. Someone comes in, I'm upset because uh, my wife doesn't understand me and, and feels that I'm spending too much time at work. Well, it sounds like your wife is really upset that you're not home a lot. That's right. She really wishes I were home a lot. And so you can get a lot of healing doing that, just saying what your pain is and having somebody reflect it back. But that isn't analytic work. So analytic work requires the other two, education, which is really an education about how psyche works and why you're experiencing what you're experiencing and where these dynamics come from. What are the origins of them? And that's where we get into both the personal and the collective unconscious. And then the transformative element is really out of anybody's hands. That comes from the self. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you are focusing on measurable results, you're not going to be able to wait around for transformation because it could take years. You mentioned that you worked for 17 years analytically. Right. Um, that is, is typical of the amount of dedication required to wait for the transformative element to occur. I think that, you know, for what I, I'm kind of glad that people are saying, well, they are Jungian oriented because at least that means that there might be some level of appreciation. The problem is usually that means talking about some weird archetypal thing now and then right. in order to show that you know it. Mm. <clears throat> and that isn't the point. Um, it's about transformation. And all of the other steps support that. But that transformation, which to use Jung's alchemical model, is what happens as you throw things into the alchemical pot and heat it up and strain it out and take a look at what's there. That's something where both you and the analysand simply have to wait. And that goes against what a lot of uh, our society wants to have happen. Yeah. So short-term therapy is what's very popular right now, as well as medication psychotropic yeah. medication to eliminate symptoms. And I get a lot of pushback, even from some Jungian analysts when I bring up medication on this podcast. And to me, if that's the route you want to take, then this is not for you. Because everybody wants to be relieved of their symptoms. Nobody wants to suffer, right? Right, right. And, I would imagine, yeah. Right. So this is a long drawn out process, but even if you are medicated, that doesn't mm -hmm. mean you're not going to suffer or you're not going to feel pain and you're not going to struggle. But to me, you're going to miss the point and you're not going to have that transformation that you talked about. Correct. Yeah. Right. 
And so that brings me to, I was listening to a lecture you gave on Gurdjieff, Auspensky, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Jung. Right. And you talked about conscious labor, you know, work. Right. And intentional suffering. Yes. Yeah. So that... It, yeah, <clears throat> I was wondering if you would say a little bit about that. Sure. That is a concept from Gurdjieff's work. And I think it's very applicable to uh, Jung. Because if we just take labor and suffering, okay, these are facts of human life. Mm-hmm. As long as I'm here, you know, I have to labor. And I'm not even just talking, working a job, but just the ordinary things we do in daily life, taking care of ourselves, taking care of our homes, uh, taking care of our neighborhood, all of that. There's labor involved. And suffering, as virtually every religious tradition and every mythic tradition uh, would present, is seems to be an inherent aspect of human life as well. So you can't change those. And if we come into a therapeutic setting or a spiritual school setting or whatever, thinking that if I do this right, I will never ever have to feel labor and I will no longer suffer, you might as well just leave because that's not going to happen. But what we want to do is bring consciousness to the labor we have to do so that if I'm always having trouble with my boss or I'm always having trouble with my kids, I just can't seem to get them to be connected to me in the way that I want. I'm going to have to work at that, but I'm going to have to be conscious about what I'm doing, what I'm saying, how I'm being with them. And I'm going to have to understand that inevitably I am going to experience suffering. So I want to put consciousness behind the suffering and intend the experience of suffering to be an element that moves me forward into consciousness. So it really is a way of transforming what simply is by monitoring my mental attitude toward it. I think I brought that up because um, I was talking about short-term therapy. I was talking about making our symptoms just disappear through medication and how that might work in the short term and make you get through a crisis or Mm -hmm. feel better until you can get your feet under you. But ultimately, you're going to be in the same place and with the same stuff Mm -hmm. after that. And I just think that we are here to deal with our stuff, that that's our responsibility. And And that, yes, mm -hmm, yeah, please, that would be So in short-term therapy, actually, what we might say is we want to get rid of the labor and we want to get rid of the suffering. But analytically, we say, no, wait a minute, there are always going to be areas in my life where I'm going to have to work hard to make it go well. So I want to do that consciously. And when I find myself in a situation where I'm being triggered. The other person is being triggered. I want to escape. 
they want me to get out. Mm -hmm. Can I bring intention to that suffering and sit with it, realizing the only way out of this situation is through it. The only way out of it is understanding how our efforts contribute to our ultimate sense of well-being, not because our difficulties go away, mm -hmm. but because we understand them more deeply and can work with them in a much more open and honest way. So what would you say to people who, what, what I hear people saying is, well, if it doesn't make you happy, don't do it. You know, and <laughs> I just want so-and-so to be happy. I just want you to be happy. Do what makes you happy. Well, what, what is the downside of that? How would you explain? Well, denying of the shadow. Okay. First of all, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, if all we want are experiences of light and happiness. Now, nobody doesn't want a lot of that, of course. Sure, sure. But if that's all we want, and if, if my sort of metric for having done successful psychological work is that I'm always happy and I don't experience any kind of pain or suffering, I'm going to have to do a whole lot of denying. Or I'm going to have to live in a universe that is so restricted that it is virtually apart from everything else. And what are the consequences of that? Uh, insanity. Um, I, it's a belief that I can be in control mm -hmm. of everything. Which essentially, if we, if we talk about this in terms of denying shadow, denying that which we find reprehensible or repulsive, what we're really saying is, I have the power to create two worlds, my world and the other world. And I am powerful enough to only live in my world. Mm. And that, I mean, I was only partly kidding when I said insanity. That's kind mm -hmm. of delusional. Mm -hmm. Because inevitably, things occur to us that are beyond our control and that we have to cope with. I, there was a workshop I did down in St. Louis years ago. I don't know if it was ever recorded. It was called Luck, Fate, and Hazard, The Determinants of Human Life. And, you know, really, if you think about it, luck, fate, and hazard are great contributors to this process or path that I call my life. And the fourth element that we have to cultivate is consciousness. Because those other elements are beyond the control of the ego. They happen to us. Mm -hmm. So as far as the shadow is concerned, I've mm -hmm. talked about that a lot on this podcast. And I do a lot of tweeting um, from whatever I'm reading. And lately, I've been tweeting from this little paperback book called Owning Your Own Shadow by Robert A. Johnson, who mm. just recently passed away I believe, yeah. last year. And I get asked the question a lot, how do I integrate my shadow? That's a hard question to answer. That's a very hard question to answer because first of all, you're never gonna be able to integrate all of it. And even the, I would want to know what the person means by integrate because 
if there is a if there's an element that is shadow for me, I'm not necessarily going to want to integrate it. So let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. To the extent that I believe it is better to be kind, cruelty is going to be in my shadow. Okay. I'm not going to want to integrate cruelty per se. Now, I could possibly really look at ways in my life when I have actually been cruel, but was unaware of being cruel. But I'm never going to be able to fully integrate cruelty. I don't even know what that would mean. Mm -hmm. However, I don't have to see a person who is exhibiting a trait that I might label as cruelty. I don't need to see that person as essentially other than me. I can actually begin to see that that person, for a variety of reasons, has made this choice. That at this particular moment, I would like to believe I wouldn't make. So the integration of the shadow for me is really a softening of the boundaries and a release of judgment. That, that that's also you. You also have the yes. capacity yeah, for absolutely. that. You're just making a different choice around it. Correct. Mm -hmm. but you don't push it away. You accept that it is. It is there. Mm -hmm. Right. And no, that doesn't mean that I have to become cruel, mm -hmm. but I have to realize I could. It, it, because yeah. it's archetypal. You know, all of these things are archetypal. And as such, they can easily possess me. Just because my life has unfolded in a particular way, and the, the moments when I have exhibited cruelty have been few and far between, may be more a function of my life than my strength to not be cruel. Mm -hmm. And that's something I can't know. So going back to the subject of analytical psychology in general, um, sometimes the term depth psychology is used. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to ask you if that is one in the same with analytical psychology and how it's changed over the years. Uh, Eric Neumann wrote a book called Depth Psychology and a New Ethic. And I believe that he might have been the first to use that term. Is that a term that Jung used, depth psychology? I'm not sure that Jung used it much, if at all. He may have referred to depth. Mm -hmm. um, but that early use of depth psychology from Neumann, you know, there's a lot of that first circle, like um, Edward Edinger coined the term ego self-axis, mm -hmm. and depth psychology may well have been coined by Neumann. Um, they, that term was reflecting how Jung understood the psyche, that it isn't just the conscious and the unconscious, but that the unconscious itself has layers. And, you know, we go deeper and deeper. But going back to your first question, depth psychology is not synonymous with analytical psychology. Okay. And if we move, you know, to the modern day, move away from uh, Neumann, who definitely was using it in a particular way to emphasize the value of looking at things from that multi-layered <clears throat> paradigm of the unconscious. 
nowadays, I'm not even quite sure what it means. It's a vague term. It, you know, to practice depth psychology, what does that mean? I have studied a lot of different modalities of psychology, and um, I have very good friends who are absolute radical behaviorists, behaviorists, okay. not cognitive behaviorists, behaviorists. They, um, and they are excellent at what they do. I have referred people to them. And if you really look at psychological treatment from a radically behavioral perspective, it's very deep. Now, it's a different kind of depth than looking at the collective unconscious. But when you start to take a look at chains of cause and effect and reinforcement and non-reinforcement, I mean, that can get very deep and very detailed. So for me, the, the term depth psychology is another one of the terms like Jungian-oriented, um, <clears throat> it would be like a quantum-oriented physicist. I don't mm -hmm. even know what that is. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I think what it what it is trying to do is form an alliance with a particular category of thought or uh, modality of treatment without committing. Without committing. To a particular, you know, when people come in to see me, if you come to see me and I'm practicing as a Jungian analyst, there are certain things I'm not going to do. <clears throat> I worked with a woman uh, who had been through a lot of different therapies, most of which was cognitive behavioral. She came and started to work with me. And after about two or three months, she said, you don't give homework. Mm. I said, no, I don't. Well, could you give me worksheets? Oh. And I said, No. And she said, but I feel better if I have worksheets. Yeah. I said, but that's not what I do. Sometimes I'll ask you to engage in a dialogue with a, a dream character, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to give you a worksheet. Um, so, you know, I think we have to be very clear. That isn't what I do. Now, this person stayed with me, but perhaps she might not have. Mm -hmm. What if she had said, well, you know, you don't really know how to do this. Everybody who really does this uses worksheets. So then if I, you know, there's a lot of reasons why one might do this. If I had said, well, you know, they want worksheets, I guess I have to figure out worksheets. That would water down what I do. Yes. Okay. You know, the, the analogy I like to use is I don't go to the hardware store to buy bread. Yeah. And I don't get angry if the hardware store doesn't sell it. That's not what they do. So this work is for those who are called to it. I would say. Yeah. And, you know, you use, you use terminology like that, and people sort of look at you like, well, what do you mean? That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know that you are being pulled in this direction. The beginning of our conversation today, when you said, well, why did you choose Jung, or why did you, you go into analytical psychology? Mm -hmm. I mean, I could give you the objective reasons, but I'm not so sure that that was a wholly one-sided choice. Yeah. I think I was pulled, I was called. And yes. again, you say that and people think that it's kind of inflated, you know, I was called. But Jung, uh, one of Jung's uh, sayings is called or uncalled, God is present. 
So we're always being called. The question is, can the ego accept the fact or not? And when it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not That's right. time or it's not your path. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. right. So moving into what um, I wanted to get to today, we don't have too much time left, but enough to cover a little bit of this is why Jung wrote about esoterica. And you mentioned a couple times already the collective unconscious. So I mm -hmm. would like for you to tell us what the collective unconscious is and how that factors into Jung's interest in subjects such as spiritualism and divination and alchemy and flying saucers. Okay. So there's a number of ways to approach that. But the first thing I'll say is when, when non-Jungians say, why was Jung so interested in esoterica? That actually reflects a cultural bias that says certain things are not worthy of the interest of someone who is serious about what they're, what they're doing. Because from Jung's perspective, he wasn't interested in esoterica any more than he was interested in schizophrenia mm -hmm. or dementia precox in his day. That was what it was called. He was interested in all of it. Yeah. Because he believed every aspect of human expression had both a personal and a collective dimension. And that gets us into the idea of the personal and the collective unconscious. Uh, the notion of the unconscious, the, the notion that there is an aspect of psyche of which the ego is unaware, but which nevertheless acts as a, as a determining resource for what the ego does in the world. That's common to all of the analytic approaches to psychology. So Freudian psychoanalysis and analytical psychology both believe that. Mm. Where there are differences has to do with the origin and function of the unconscious. So from a Freudian perspective, what what was called the unconscious was a repository of material that had once been present to the ego in the world, but for a variety of reasons, the ego couldn't process all of it. So it was put into the unconscious for later processing, through dreams, through other ways of addressing it. But from a Freudian perspective, the unconscious is composed of very personal material that has come about within the person's historical lifetime. So my mother complex from Freudian perspective is composed of all of the experiences I had of my personal mother and other carriers of mothering, but it would all come from my life. Now Jung never argued with that. But there were a number of things that Jung wondered about. And one of them was, why should the unconscious be so well organized if it really was just composed of material that was basically thrown in there um, out of my day-to-day -day interactions with the world? Mm -hmm. 
why would there be these kind of cohesive nodes of energy in the unconscious that he came to call complexes? Because it, it, let's just take experience of the mother complex, which everyone has. Your experiences of the mother are going to be, you know, spread out through years and years and years of your life. There's no organization there. You'll have an experience of the mother, then you'll have an experience of, you know, the neighbor across the street, an experience of getting the measles. And it, why would there be this clustering and formation of complexes? And gradually, Jung came to understand that the structures of the unconscious, which he began to think of now as the personal unconscious, was brought about and supported by a much deeper level of the psyche that contained material that was never present to my ego in this life, but simply was part of my unconscious because I exist. And he called that layer of the unconscious the collective unconscious to emphasize first that it was not personal and I share it with everyone else. So it's collective in that we all have access to it and it is distinct from the personal. But the collective unconscious, which contains structuring elements, which Jung later came to call archetypes, are the reason why the personal unconscious becomes well-organized. So Jung had an interest in in everything, right? He so he was about wholeness. <clears throat> and he was he about wholeness, right. Yeah, and he didn't exclude things. And I think that that is one of the things that he's criticized for is because Jung started off as a psychiatrist. He did. And I often wonder, well, how is how did he reconcile these things with being, you know, a, a scientist, a, a doctor, a medical doctor? Well, I think he would have said it was precisely because of that mm -hmm. and because of his interest in empirical findings that he did look at the things in the way that he looked at them. Uh, he worked with severely mentally ill people. And at that time, the the things that they would say, the kind of uh, delusional verbalizations that they would would externalize, were simply seen as a symptom of their pathology, and would be handled as such. We have to reduce the symptom through whatever means possible. Some of them were pretty brutal at the time, mm -hmm. and Jung, for whatever reason, thought, well, why don't we just listen to the content? Because he believed that, you know, there's a lot of ways to be delusional. Why don't we pay attention to the specific way that this person is, is delusional or this person is psychotic rather than simply label it psychotic? And I think this probably was the greatest gift he could have brought because mm -hmm. he said, why don't we, yes, we know that they're crazy. I think there was some lecture or uh, interview where he actually used that word. Did he? Oh, yes, he did. I remember that. Right, right. Yeah. But that isn't enough. You know, yeah. let's, let's really listen to what they're saying. And there's a lot of uh, controversy around this, but 
it would seem that when he did so, he began to detect a pattern in the delusional systems mm -hmm. that couldn't possibly have come simply from this person's personal history. There had to be something else operating as well. And that, as Jung said, gave him a hint. And he took the hint. If you take the collective unconscious as a working hypothesis, then there would be nothing that you would say is not appropriate for study, including mythology, UFOs, the I Ching, tarot cards, uh, astrology, all astrology, these things. Right. Yeah, he ran charts on many of his clients, and uh, a lot of that work appears in one of the volumes in the collected works called Experimental Researches. So why this resistance, and I, I could just speak, being an American who lives in the United States, I can just speak about our culture here, why this resistance to these subjects? And uh, they are laughed at, they're ridiculed, they're dismissed, and a lot of us are afraid to talk about them publicly. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, it's ego... It's a belief in the absolute power of the ego. And when you start looking at the sorts of things we're talking about, what we're saying is that there are elements of my experience that I have no explanation for yeah. using the paradigms that I've already acquired. Mm -hmm. And so I either have to say, huh, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I should investigate this, which is what Jung did. Or you could say, because I don't understand this, it's marginal, and we need to reject it. You know, there's a very interesting, I'll just point out something with astrology that, uh, and, and neuro, neuroscience. Mm -hmm. We know now, we didn't know this back when I was in school, when we thought that the brain just lost cells, you know, but we now know that certain parts of the brain, especially the frontal and the prefrontal cortices, don't fully develop, are not fully, you know, elaborated mm -hmm. till a person is about 27 years of age. Mm -hmm. In astrology, ages old, there is a phenomenon called the Saturn return. Oh, yeah. And the first Saturn return occurs around 27 years of age. Mm -hmm. Now, as a Jungian, I'm not arguing causation. I'm not saying, aha, Saturn is creating the frontal and prefrontal cortices. But what I am saying is, isn't that an interesting coincidence? And for that, those who, I yeah. just want to add, uh, let me jump in here. Uh, for those who are not familiar, a Saturn return means the time that it takes for the planet Saturn to go to return to the position it was at the moment you were born. So for instance, when I was born, Saturn was at 14 degrees of Pisces. I experienced my Saturn return when Saturn again returned to 14 degrees of Pisces mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. the age of 27, 28, 29. It depends right. on how Somewhere, fast exactly. Saturn right. is moving in the cycle. Okay, go ahead. Right. But I, I just think that that's an interesting synchronicity that 
that there is a truth being told here that is being expressed in these various symbol systems. But it is curious that neuroscience is discovering something that coincides with mm -hmm. what astrologers have been talking about. And again, I'm not arguing causally, mm -hmm. but I, you know, Jung said often these sorts of things occur to remind us that we need to take notice. We need to be curious. We need to be able to be yeah. surprised. Mm -hmm. We're, we spend so much time uh, advancing technology uh, to make our lives easier or to accomplish things, um, but we don't take as much time to advance our knowledge of our inner life, our psyche, how the psyche works. And that's what I'm committed to understanding because we don't, we can't have anything else if we don't have a, a strong inner life. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just still not being taken seriously. Right. Um, what would you say to that um, moving forward? Where do we go from here? I, 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 I don't think it's getting better. I think it's getting worse, but I, I could be wrong. Well, I think that the distinction between the inner world and the outer world is something that gradually has to break down. That's why I always say the so-called inner world and the so-called outer world, mm -hmm. because both the inner and the outer world, both sets of experiences receive their structure and integrity from the archetypes of the collective unconscious. And so whether I'm pondering a dream or looking at the front page of the newspaper at the latest disaster, I am seeing an expression of the collective unconscious. And if I bring that awareness to it, we break down this barrier between inner and outer and we realize there really is no way out of reckoning with the archetypal dynamics that we are experiencing at any particular time. My first analyst always used to say, what is the archetypal ground of this circumstance or condition? Because if we stay merely at the circumstance or condition, not that we don't want to take that seriously and handle it in whatever way we can, but if we only stay at that level, we are not going to get the whole story. What's the archetypal ground, for example, of polarization in you know, politics? Mm -hmm. So whether you think it's a problem or not, what's the archetypal ground there? And where can we shift? How can we shift? What is the archetypal ground of treating people like commodities? I work with a lot of young people. And, you know, they, they get jobs with companies and they're working 80, 90 hours. They, can, <clears throat> they can't even have social relationships. What's the archetypal ground there? Mm -hmm. Whether or not that's a problem to be solved, whether or not an individual feels that's a problem, it's coming from a certain archetypal level. And I don't mean to be smug, but we're going to have to reckon with that so-called inner world or the collective unconscious one way or the other. And we can either do it face forward or, you know, 
being pulled from behind. Well, uh, what, yeah, why do you say that? What what are you seeing that that causes you to say that? And and again, where do we go from here? What can we do? Yeah. Well, the first of all, the ego has to learn humility, and that doesn't mean humiliation. But we have to be able to understand that as powerful as we may be, we are limited. And the energies of the self, which is at the core of the collective unconscious, is really running the whole show. So when the self, I, I often say to uh, people in my classes, you know, it's not that there is no such thing as free will, but when the self is pulling you, your free will becomes limited to two choices. You can go face forward or you can go ass backwards, but you're going to go because the ego's power is always relative to the energies of the self. That was the other thing that Jung felt analytic work allowed us to understand that the ego becomes relativized to the self. It's not that we're helpless and throw up our arms and go, oh, whatever, I don't have to do anything. But we understand that we are always working in cooperation with forces of the psyche that are much greater and more ancient mm -hmm. than we are. And we can view that as a very powerful alliance, which I believe it is, or we could view it as a repudiation of the absolute power of the ego, which I think leads people to reject it. So we're coming to the end of our time today, Dr. James. Is there anything else we haven't covered or any final words you'd like to leave us with? I think if people can begin to appreciate the reality of the psyche and to understand that that reality pervades our experience at every moment, I think there's a possibility that we can all individually and collectively move toward wholeness, which I think is what Jung's intention was. So I'd like us to begin to honor the reality of the psyche. Yes. Very well said. Well, thank you so much, Dr. James. And on behalf of all of the listeners, I'd like to thank you for your time today. Please visit the website, speakingofjung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed here today. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and now on iHeartRadio. With special thanks to the C.G. Jung Center in Evanston, Illinois, and to the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.